What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 52 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Friday, what? June 23rd, 2017. I'm here with my co-host, Mike. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing good. I'm doing I'm doing pretty good, actually. So, um, yeah, my uh, I've been dealing with this sort of, uh, I don't know if it's an ingrown toenail. It might be. Oh, God. It might not be. The ingrown but- toenail odyssey continues onto the podcast. <laughs> Well, it's it's because it's been going it's been going on for way too long. So, but I just wanted to mention it real quick because that's mainly the thing that's been on my head is this fucking painful, annoying toe toenail thing I've been dealing with for the past few weeks. But finally, there's been some actual progression. I've been uh, soaking my foot in Epsom salts, and that's been helping it. So I'm hoping things will work out and everything will like heal itself. I don't have to go to a doctor and do surgery and all that. Now, is an is a ingrown toenail like literally a toenail that like just grows into your skin instead of yeah. away from yeah, your skin? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, yeah. wow. That's, that's it a- might not be it might not be that though. It might have been something where I dropped something on my toe or I kicked something or stubbed my toe and I didn't think about it until later and then it's all this, you know, now it's bothering me. I don't I don't know really. I went to the free clinic already, and they basically told me just Epsom salts and whatever, because it's not really that infected, so there wasn't much else they could do. So, you know, we'll see what happens. My my mom also got me some uh, sandals, so that'll help, because I think wearing socks and tight socks and tight shoes probably is not going to help (laughs) whatever is going on down there. And also, uh, yeah, so... That's mainly what's been going on. I also am going to get new glasses, which I hadn't... I've, that was interesting to do the eye exam, because they have this new technology now where they take a picture of your eye so they can see if it's healthy and all of that and whatever. Instead of having to do the eye drops where you got to put eye drops in your eyes and you'll, your eyes are dilated for a whole day, then now you can pay a little bit extra and they can take a picture of your eye and they showed me my eye it was actually pretty cool it was was actually uh, i thought it was actually beautiful to see this image of of the eye with the retina and all this other stuff that's pretty cool um yeah i i I don't think i've ever had an eye exam i don't need glasses yet thankfully never had my brother on the other hand he got like all the horrible physical genetics that our family had in the, our DNA pool mm-hmm. like it was all passed to my brother and I didn't <laughs> I didn't really get any of them. my eyesight is worse than my mom's like I have like a minus nine uh, when it comes to uh, the eyesight which is apparently pretty high um, for you know prescription and my mom's like a five <laughs> so my mom you know I'm like almost double <laughs> my mom's prescription um, so you're blind basically the, I can only see what's in front of my face without my glasses. Like, that's it. So yeah, it's it's pretty bad. But um, if you guys yeah, want to, if you guys want to hear more information about Mike's ingrown toenail, text toe to two two eight nine four seven for <laughs> minute by minute updates. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, um, I think that's enough from my end. What have you been doing lately? 
Oh, gee, what have I been doing? Um, well, uh, I think we're about a week out, at least from the release of my album, Koyana Scotsy, by my my band. I, I hate calling it Side Project, but I, I hate calling it a band, too, because it's not a band, because it's just me. But Side Project... It's a one-man band. Yeah, one-man band, there you go. Uh, Dancing with Ghosts, and um, the response has been really uh, humbling. Uh, I... I I want to thank everybody out there who has purchased either a digital copy or a physical copy. Um, and it's still available on iTunes, and the CD is available on Bandcamp. I'll put the link in the description, because with Bandcamp, it's a stupid, ridiculous link that I can't Oh, really... and then with Bandcamp, you're also not making that much either, right? Eh, I'm not making any much anyway you slice it. I mean, I, I could have I priced the album at like 10, 10 bucks or like 12 bucks, but... You know, you go on iTunes now, and like some of these new releases by these big artists are like seven ninety nine for the whole album. So the, the just dude, music is music has gotten so devalued as a whole from when I was a teenager that it's making my head spin. Like I cannot believe how much music has just got become just disposable and devalued. Like I remember back in the day, man. Like. Hey, put up a chair, kids. Old Grandpa Cannon's gonna reminisce with you a little bit. Join the fireside chat. Now, I remember when I was a little kid, though, like, well, not a little kid, shit, a teenager, late teens, early 20s. If you wanted a song, you'd have to go to the CD store, and you'd have to buy the album, and you'd listen to the other songs on the album, and, you know, you'd become a fan of those other songs, and before you knew it, you knew of a band's material, you were well-versed in their material, and your iPod or iPhone or whatever wasn't full of just the biggest hit of that band, and I don't know, it, it just, uh... Anyway, I digress. I'm just super thankful for the people who actually have bought the album and supported me in that way, and, and that's really awesome. And that was a big... Getting that album out was a big deal for me, and it was a big uh, kind of a relief or a big weight off my shoulders. So as of today, I just finished, and it hasn't even been put out yet. It probably won't be released until tomorrow, which I think Saturday is probably like not a great day to release YouTube videos. Am I right about that, or is that just... Well, I don't know. It depends. I think with their algorithms and stuff, people are more or less like out and about and shit, and they're not really home watching YouTube videos. But yeah, it, anyway, it's a new episode of my Overstimulation Station, which is my bigger videos where I actually put a lot of production into them. And it's about Adam Sandler's comedy albums that he released in the 90s that a lot of people don't remember that were actually... I saw one of those at Goodwill, and it kind of interested me, but I didn't want to pay three bucks for it, so... Wait, do like, you remember eh. which one it was? No, I don't, but okay. if you told the title, maybe I'd remember it. I know it's something to do with school. It was like a school one. Uh, it was very heavily influenced by school. I don't know about. I don't know of that one, but anyway, yeah, Adam Sandler, <laughs> you know, he did, he's done a lot of shitty movies lately, in the past 10 years at least. He's done a lot of shitty movies, and but during the 90s, there was, in early 2000s, there was a strange period where he released these comedy albums that were really you know, adult-themed, very rated R, for sure, NC-17 stuff, and they were really funny, and they were really vulgar, and I just feel like a lot of people don't remember that side of him, and so I did. I made a video on that, did a video on that, so uh, that's going to be out either tomorrow or whenever, I don't know. But, well, that um, sounds interesting. I'm, d I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, I even play some of the samples of the stuff on there, and I'm probably not going to be able to monetize that video, because I'm, I'm most certainly going to get a, some kind of a copyright thing for it, but I don't care. I'm not trying to make money yeah. off my yeah. YouTube channel anyway. So, 
yeah so that's that's definitely something to look forward to yeah so uh you know mike a few weeks ago mike's kind of like working with you is always interesting because you you just come up with these ideas sometimes out of nowhere yeah and they're just yeah. then they're usually like good like they're yeah you just you're the idea guy like like yeah i've come up with some ideas here and there too but like uh a few weeks ago, like I think before our fiftieth episode, our one year anniversary, Mike's like, "Hey, do you remember the or the West Memphis Three or whatever?" It's like, "Oh yeah, I remember that that story and those kids and all that." And the main thing I honestly remember about it is that Metallica and the Dixie Chicks and like all these big celebrities started rallying around these kids where this murder was involved in Tennessee. Yeah. And so Mike's like, oh, there's all these documentaries about it. Like, let's do a whole episode about that. But let's do like like three or four parts because there's three or four documentaries about it. And I was like, oh, well, that's that's interesting. I like that idea. And so here we are. It's a very special episode of Uncovering Unexplained. Yeah, it's a it's a milestone, so to speak. The first time we really are covering exclusively a case that was not featured on the show. And... I thought this would, this was a perfect documentary to talk about on this podcast because it has the satanic panic element that we've discussed before with certain cases on Unsolved Mysteries. And also, it is just a really gripping, powerful documentary. And this whole series is interesting. Some documentaries in this series are better than others. And uh, Josh and I will both find that out firsthand. Um, but I, I really thought it would be a really cool thing to revisit and to go back and look at where it all started now, with what, Paradise Lost. You've seen all these documentaries, right? Yes. I haven't seen West of Memphis yet, though. That's the fourth one that is a different sort of... It's its approach is kind of like it looks back. It's, it's like one of those approaches in hindsight. Um, this this documentary was released in 1996 around the height of everything. So where would and you rate where would you rate this documentary? This Paradise Lost out of the, the out of the series? three that I've seen, this is the best one. Okay. Yeah, this, it's really a blessing in disguise that we that we were forced to name our show Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries instead of Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries, which is our original name because uh, we can do stuff like this now, and it's not exactly. super weird, you know, like it's yeah. so. You know, as much as we love Unsolved Mysteries, every now and then you got to step outside the box and savor all the, the library of vast episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Speaking of which, if you guys want to donate to our Patreon, it's uh, patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. I just put out a solo bonus segment um, for our for our certain uh, donor level. Uh, I talk about the Kurt Cobain case on Unsolved Mysteries, and I even do a cover of a Nirvana song at the end of that bonus segment. So if you want my take on what I think happened with Kurt Cobain and uh, Unsolved Mysteries take on and all that, so, uh, considering uh, donating to us on Patreon. So the film that we're talking about today is Paradise Lost, uh, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. It was an HBO documentary. You know, it was distributed by HBO. Um, it actually got a lot of critical acclaim upon its release, uh, including uh, really positive reviews from Siskel and Ebert and others. It's directed by Joel Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky, and uh, it also heavily features music by Metallica. Metallica! Now, 
This was something unique for the time because Metallica had yet to allow any film to use their music. They were so compelled and so drawn to this case that uh, they decided they really wanted to lend their music to this film. And it really does fit the film like a glove. Because the West Memphis Three themselves, especially Damien Eccles and Jason uh, Baldwin, they were really into heavy metal. They were big fans of Metallica. And the film... heavily features the song Sanitarium, which is also known as Welcome Home. And it's a great song, and it really does add a lot of great mood and atmosphere to this documentary. Now, what we're going to start out with first, folks, is kind of our overview, kind of our review of the movie, and then we're going to go into a discussion on certain things that are covered in the film. Now, this film, to me, it's hard to watch oh my god it's very hard to watch but I actually i actually want to say on that note you know when when i first started doing this podcast i thought about i thought about the ufo segments on unsolved mysteries and the ghost segments and how fun it'd be to talk about paranormal shit i never knew that i would be getting in to the trenches of of crime stuff uh the trenches of uh these kind of things, you know, but this is where the podcast has kind of naturally evolved to. And here I am watching this movie, this documentary, because it's not, it's a movie, but it's a documentary. It's all real. Nothing's fiction about this. Um, I'm, now I'm watching this documentary that, that literally opens up showing the dead bodies of three young boys. Shows them, shows them right there uh, on camera. Uh, on this riverbank as they were found with rigor mortis already kicking in looked like they were dolls they looked like they were dummies or dolls one of them was in like a sitting position even though he was laying down on the ground that's because his bones and joints were all stiffened up from rigor mortis and here I am watching this just knowing thinking I'm in for a ride with this movie because I'm already like fucked up from the first scene exactly uh the film even has multiple disclaimers before it starts so to kind of prepare you for that and yeah it's it's a hard watch but i personally feel it's an engrossing and absolutely captivating and enthralling watch as well it's two hours it's over two hours but it goes by really quick because it's just so compelling uh, and so fascinating, and it, it's in a lot of ways there are certain aspects of it that are like a train wreck that you just can't look away. You're just like, what? <laughs> How did this even happen? How could something like this actually happen in modern day society? And you just can't wrap your head around it. And uh, of course, you had the brutal uh, aspects of the crime itself. Uh, they show the crime photographs. They show the the bodies that the, the the of the boys that are there in the ditch, and um, it's an unflinching film that really does not pull any punches. And it's also one of those documentaries that doesn't seem to me personally to be too biased. It covers both sides adequately and very well, in my opinion. Uh, it, it leaves everything up to you. It's like Make your own decisions. And it, it did a great job, in my opinion, showing what it was like to be 
on the jury during the trials of these three boys. The West Memphis Three. Yeah, I feel like this movie is an example of HBO at its best. Um, this is this is why you get HBO. Uh, it's it's something that it's giving you that that you just can't get on cable TV or elsewhere. Um, you would have never seen such an in-depth documentary like this had it been on any other network or anything like that. And and with the budget of HBO, they were able to go and fly out to these locations and interview these witnesses, who are not always painted in the best light, by the way. Um, and, you know, then I'm also brought to mind the uh, documentary Going Clear, which is another uh, yes, great, great HBO. that's another fantastic documentary. Yeah, so, this, so HBO, you know, really... Uh, hit the hit the ball out of the park with this one. Uh, very fantastic documentary. I knew I'd seen it before a long time ago, but uh, I don't think I'd seen the whole thing. But yeah, it's it's two hours and twenty eight minutes, I believe. But it, you you can't look away the the entire time. It's uh it was released in nineteen ninety six, and you know it, it's technically an older film, but uh, it still has a lot of staying power, uh, and you know, and it's a film that I do recommend people check out. Um, it's one of the best documentaries I've personally ever seen. It, it, it grabs you and doesn't let go from the very beginning. And it is just a very gripping uh, documentary. Well, that's another it, it, thing. It just... You bring up the 1996 thing, and you says it, you say it's an older film, but you know, for fans of unsolved mysteries, uh, it has yeah. it has that same kind of look and vibe. It's got the very grainy, very soft looking footage. You know, like the look to everything's very kind of you know that, that, that it's like it was shot almost the same way uh, that unsolved mysteries was, which is interesting because a lot of the cinematographers on unsolved mysteries were they came from documentary filmmaking so it feels very uh, akin to unsolved mysteries but with no reenactments and all the violence you see is real and you have to reckon with that in your own mind which is sometimes difficult yeah yeah it is um but yeah it's one of those films that it paved the way for what came after it Look at a lot of these true crime documentaries and shows that you see nowadays. You know, just like Unsolved Mysteries helped pave the way, so did Paradise Lost because with the way that it, the way that it was structured, the way that things were set up, um, a lot of the times with a lot of these documentaries, they were they weren't really the same kind of structure as this. So this was a different kind of setup. There's a more cinematic feel and look to it with the editing, with the music, with how everything is put together. And uh, it was less of a straightforward approach, and there it, it was it mixed things up, you know, it, it changed things. So I feel like we should probably go over. And it's on Amazon Prime, folks. Yeah. If you have if you have yeah. Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free uh, while HBO is still available on there. In, uh, in 2019, I think the deal with Amazon Prime will end. But I think you have plenty of time. I swear to God, we're not shilling for Amazon Prime, but they just happen to have a lot of good shit on there lately. Yeah, so what we're going to do now is talk about the film or talk about specifically talk about uh, certain aspects of the film that we personally feel are worth uh, discussing. Um, Well, let's kind of like explain the case so people know what we're even talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I have I have a little synopsis here. 
Um, the Dark Odyssey began with the tragic murders of Stephen Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore, whose mutilated bodies were discovered in a shallow creek along Interstate 40 in West Memphis, Arkansas. Now, the community demanded justice, and one month later, the police charged three teenagers with sacrificing the boys as part of a satanic ritual. One of the suspects, 17-year-old Jesse Miskelly, reportedly confessed to, police, confessed to the police. <laughs> I'm having a hard time believing this stuff actually happened, so I can't even get the right words. <laughs> reportedly confessed to police that he watched 18-year-old Damien Eccles and 16-year-old Jason Baldwin choke, mutilate, rape, and kill the children. Children. Well, Miss Kelly, d- yeah, yeah, children. So they they were kids, mind you. They were they were young kids, eight year olds. On May fifth, nineteen ninety three, their bodies were found next to a muddy creek in the wooded Robin Hood Hills area of West Memphis, Arkansas. And three a month later, three of the teenagers, the West Memphis three, were arrested and accused and charged of raping, mutilating, and killing the young boys. That's your setting. That's the case that we're dealing with. Yikes. Already. <laughs> Already. I know. You're starting out with, uh, you know, I mean, it's one thing to kill somebody. It's one thing to kill and rape somebody. We've talked about that a lot. But good Lord, children. I mean, did, you know. That- and, and these kids were brutally mutilated and beaten. Yeah. I mean, one was so brutally beaten, his face was unrecognizable because it was beaten in so many times. I was actually going to uh, say before you start saying all that, I, if there was ever a viewer, a listener discretion advised to any of our podcasts, yeah, it's it would this be one. this one. So just keep that in mind. So, yeah, the, one of the kids is so brutally beaten, he was unrecognizable. Another kid was mutilated uh, so badly that uh, there was genital mutilation involved, which I have a hard time even saying that. As you can see, my voice, I can't even, (laughs) it's just like, my voice cracked because I was like, can't even believe it. Um, It's too shocking. Yeah, it's one of those things where it is, it's brutal. And it's intense, and it's horrible, and it's horrifying. Now, one thing I have to say about this this uh, whole movie and this whole kind of region that this happened in, this is the South, you know. This is... Arkansas. This is my stomping grounds, essentially. Every single person in this movie is very Southern and reminds me of a family member in my family some way or another. I mean, I see my dad in this movie. I see my uncles. I see my grandparents. Like, all these people are, like, archetypes of Southern, like, people you would have in a Southern family. And uh, it just was mind-blowing that that these, I could relate to these people so much just from my own family members. And two, it was also mind-blowing to me how in 1990, uh, whenever it was, I know the 1993, 93 and 93, how you could still have such a backwards thinking in so many ways, um, how, how the United States could, there could be regions of the United States that could be so backwards thinking to think that if a kid is wearing a black t-shirt with a band logo on it, then, then there's just something not right about that kid. He worships the devil. 
It's so crazy to think that people legitimately thought that at one point in our country. And that maybe there's still parts of the country where people still think I that. guarantee I guarantee there still are parts of the country that think that. But I mean, with that being said, though, I, I do think we've come a long way. I mean, that's almost 20 years yeah. ago. Well, actually, it is 20 years ago. Um, I, I do think that we've come a long way with that. And I think even the most staunch Southern conservatives have become a bit more open. But yeah, it was crazy because, you know, you th- 90... To me, the 90s, again, I've said this before, but the 90s don't seem like that far away in time. No. But once you watch this documentary, and like you were saying, the satanic panic that was going on in the 90s, which we've covered a lot on Unsolved Mysteries, that was like a big thing. Like Satanism, like just church lady, Satan, you know, it was Satan. (laughs) Uh, it, it, that was like such a that was such a big thing that was going on, and that de- definitely plays a lot into this case. And and, and with these kids, Damian Eccles, uh, one of the perpetrators, uh, in particular, uh, oh yeah, a lot of bias from this. Exactly. So uh, yeah, it was in Arkansas, in the middle of the Bible Belt. And uh, what I found really. Uh, interesting was the contrast between you know these devout religious christians and their the way that they were reacting and the way that they were behaving after the loss of these kids in the community and in their families and that ties into the first uh discussion point i wanted to, wanted to discuss and that is all about the effect and impact of grief and loss on a community and a family. And this was especially evident for the parents of the kids who were murdered. And rightfully, you know, rightfully so, if you have an eight-year-old or if you had a kid like that and, and those uh, horrific things happen to them, rightfully so, you would, you would be very upset. I understand the upset part. It's just... That's understandable. What's what do you kind of crazy you, and kind of yeah. hard for me to take is the just vindictiveness of these parents. The sheer absurd amount of hate they have for Damien, Jason and Jesse and how they're totally going against their own personal beliefs. There's a scene in the film where John Mark Byers, the dad of one of the kids who was murdered, uh, he's singing a hymn in church, and then the next scene, he's shooting pumpkins and water jugs at a shooting range with one of the other uh, fathers of one of the other kids who were killed, and he's imagining they're the kids imagine they're damien jason and jesse and he's relishing in this this fantasy of shooting and killing them slowly as if they're at like a shooting you know gallery or you know it's one of those uh, firing squads you know it i like i could see why why you would be amazed by this and astonished by the apparent um almost hypocrisy uh, that would that would almost fly in the face of their religious beliefs, but but none of this in this movie, how the parents reacted, uh, was new to me because, like I said, I grew up 
with people like this. I'm not saying I'm like this. I'm not saying I agree with this, but I grew up with people like this in, in the church where you would go to church on Sunday and, and you know, you would constantly profess your love for Christ and your hatred for Satan and all this. And then you'd go to the shooting range and, you know, whatever. You'd take out your frustrations and all this, or you'd go hunting, you know, and not, not saying there's anything wrong with any of that. But, um, you know, I, I already know what this guy's thinking because I've been around these types of people my whole life. And, he you know, the whole thing is like, I, you know, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, but, you know, I'm not a perfect individual. And when, you know, when they, that son of a bitch did that to my baby, then I'm sorry, you know, uh, I, I'm not perfect. And, you know, that's why blah, blah, blah. Like the Lord is perfect. I'm not. And so this, that, and the other. So that's kind of the justification is that, well, I'm not perfect and I, I do my best, but blah, blah. And like, I understand that to a certain extent. Like I, I really do like the whole uh, wanting to kill these kids, but uh, 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 another thing too is just all all the um, and this happens in small towns every everywhere, not just southern small towns. All the assumptions that were made, exactly, all the rumors that went around that were just believed, like just fi- at face value, the rumors about like John Mark Byers believing that Damien had uh, one of the kids' uh, genitals and his testicles in a jar of formaldehyde in in his room somewhere which is just a rumor yeah there's nothing there's nothing to that whatsoever um yeah I, I get that but i'm not exposed to that you know i I'm, i don't know people like that oh. in my family or where i live so it, it's definitely more of a shock to me to see this kind of just vindictive hatred. Oh, dude! I mean, oh, dude! You should have you should have been here during nine eleven. You should have lived here in Jacksonville during nine eleven. Oh man! Like after September eleventh, two thousand one happened. Uh, oh my God! The rednecks were just they were just uh, because it's like they stockpile all these guns and now they finally you know they might have a reason to use them so they're all super stoked and they're all like i tell you what if one of them taliban come down our dirt road i'm feeling that son of a bitch with so much lead he gonna look like swiss cheese it's like okay uh they, they don't care about you uh they, they they're gonna wipe out major targets in the u.s they're not coming down juniper road this dirt road in rural <laughs> jacksonville and they're not knocking on your door going my friend i am here to blow you up you know that that's not gonna happen you know but it's it's yeah so i'm very well acquainted with it one of the statements that uh the the father john byers made in the documentary that i wrote down the, again was a big fucking assumption is he said like uh, he's standing in the ditch where the kid and this is more like a ravine it's like a lot much bigger than a ditch it's more like a ravine yeah and he's saying he's saying they they prayed to satan and they prayed to the devil and they had all their satanic rituals out here and they had their homosexual orgies from what yeah. I, from what i've been told i know my son was castrated and left to bleed to death on this riverbank okay that last statement is the only thing that you know for a fact all that other shit is pure speculation their homosexual urge orgies from what i've been told i love that line there from what i've been <laughs> yeah. told who told you how do they know you know like this see and that's that it's 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 that same shit is why I don't get involved in all that stuff that was going on in like 2015 and 2016 with all the the Black Lives Matter and all that kind of controversy with the um, all the various like 
black kids that were coming up in the news where there was police brutality and all that. I didn't take a side on that. You know, want to know why? Because people's tempers were, were too highly fueled to get any kind of real factual kind of evidence from what, what actually happened. Because nine times out of ten, either A, you weren't there, or B, you're relying on something that someone else told you. Yeah. So how can you have a informed, unbiased opinion when all you have to go on is uh, shit other people say and and conjecture you know you can't you just can't you can't you 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 just don't know until the truth comes out you know what i mean so i reserve my right to to make an opinion until i get all the fucking facts and if you have a problem with that if you're listening to that then you need to take a look at yourself and how you uh come to accusations and and you need to know that you reserve the right to hold your opinion until you have all the facts. You don't have to jump to a, a conclusion all the time. Even though society tells you that that you in this this outraged society that we live in where you're you instantly are put on the spot. What's your opinion on this? Aren't you outraged by this in one way or the other? It's like you have the right to be like, hey, chill the fuck out, everybody. Let's gather some evidence and some facts before we start throwing shit around you know and let's reserve the right to say something's bullshit even if everyone else is saying that oh no this is definitely what happened you know there's a lot of that 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 could have benefited this case if people had done that but it wasn't well yeah we see that's the thing people were just they believed what they wanted to hear right from the very beginning um, their minds were already made up, and especially from the parents. I mean, they've suffered so much grief and loss that all they see is hate. Uh, their grief has completely clouded their judgment, and it's made them want only one thing, vindication. To them, there is no such thing as innocent until proven guilty. It's just guilty until proven innocent. And even then, they admit that they would still stalk the, the West Memphis Three or shoot them dead in the street if they got let out. Now, I should say, um, I have only watched this one documentary. I don't know what has happened to these West Memphis Three, and I'm keeping it that way. So I'm just going off of this documentary, which ends with um, the the three being convicted. And mm-hmm. that's all I know, folks. So, yeah. so I'm not going off of any further information about this case, I'm just going off of what I know from after watching this documentary. So, everything I'm saying right now, it's not like I already know what happened. So, you know, uh, the history is a uh, 2020 vision, as they say, because you're able to know exactly what the right thing was because you know it's already happened. So it's easy to sit there and say, well, that's what you should have done. Is blah blah blah. You know, you ever tell a story to somebody and they go, oh, well, if that was me, what I would have done. Oh, God, yes. And it's like people are, are, you know, they react on hindsight. Yeah, you know? and it's like, oh, after you know exactly how it turned out and you have all the facts, you're telling me how you would have reacted. Oh, okay, thanks, asshole. Well, I didn't have that luxury w- right when it was happening in the present tense. So yeah. uh, so I'm I'm in the present tense right now. I don't know what, and you know, I don't know if any vindication... I don't know if these 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 uh, boys have been uh, you know absolved or anything. I don't know any of that. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm going just straight so, off this. Yeah, with the whole stuff with the parents and the grief and all of that. I mean, the grief makes it so you can't think clearly anymore. All you want is justice, 
and the thought that the people arrested for killing your children might not be the real killers is something you just refuse to think about. It's not the resolution you desire. So you latch onto the guilty verdict as the only one that matters, despite the evidence that's provided that they might be innocent, because you can't cope without a guilty verdict. You need that guilty verdict. So what? So let's dive into this case more. So what? Well, go- there's some other stuff too I wanted to mention real quick too. Like something I thought was kind of uh, intriguing was how John Mark Byers kept mentioning how victims don't have any rights. There was this whole scene where there uh, some of the parents are at a meeting with these other parents who have had their kids killed and the some of the other parents of you know some of the parents of the three boys that were murdered they go on and speak up and say things like oh well they don't deserve any rights they're murderers you know they're criminals they don't deserve to have a a new suit Uh, they don't deserve to look nice in the courtroom they deserve to you know go out there in their jumpsuit and and shackles And, and i'm just like if you were in this situation yourself and you believe you were innocent and all of that and i'm pretty sure you would believe you were innocent until proven guilty and if you were arrested for a crime you didn't commit i am damn sure you would want a nice suit to wear instead of an orange jumpsuit and i'm also sure you would not want to be led into the courtroom in chains (laughs) so it's one of those things that's like people just fail to put things into perspective a lot and, and and I can see why they feel that way. And this is when they have a loss like this. It, it's one of those things where it, it's just the loss is so great that they just don't have the same filter as they normally do. And you know, stuff comes out. They say things that maybe they don't really mean, but or maybe they do. Uh, it's just one of those things where. This is the kind of stuff that grief will do to you. And it, it's just one of those things you don't see covered like it is in this film that much. You really don't. Because it doesn't paint a pretty picture of the victims. But I think it's... I, think, I thought it was a necessary thing to do because it showed you that's the kind of stuff... It's ugly, it's brutal, but that's real. Also, in addition to that... Um... I mean, that's the kind of stuff you see... And that's the kind of reactions that, even once you see them, you can't believe it. But then when you think about it some more, you're like, it's understandable. They're just extremely frustrated. In the movie, in the documentary, Damien Eccles, one of the uh, supposed perpetrators of this crime, he, he's, he's actually pretty intelligent. He's pretty, yeah. he's pretty well-spoken. Out of the three, which the other two are just pure dunces, uh, one, of them, yeah. one of them is actually like, medic like clinically like retarded um as they go on to say in the movie uh which is part which which goes into one of the big problems that they run into but damien the i guess maybe the ringleader whatever you want to call him uh he's saying uh he was quoted at one point as saying they were under a lot of pressure they had to find someone to lay the blame on before people started losing their jobs and we were the obvious choice exactly he nailed it so he really did. Yeah. I love the I love the term that he used. He called it Second Salem. Yeah, yeah. West Memphis is Second Salem, and that ties into their trial, which we'll get to uh, soon enough. But yeah, 
it's just it is it is crazy you know how people react and and the cra- and it is even crazier you know the, to hear you know the things that they say the crazy things that they say when they're fueled by rage which is fueled by grief and loss now the next uh part of the film i wanted to discuss is essentially what the first part of the film was all about was you know the, there's a little introduction stuff that gave you a gist of what the parents were feeling the emotions they were dealing with and so on and introduction to the case and but really the first part was about jesse miskelly's jr's trial because he was tried separately from the other two boys uh, jason and and damien uh, he was he was one of the said perpetrators correct exactly okay so jesse he had an iq of 72 this meant that he was mentally handicapped and this the whole crux of this trial is all about this confession from Jesse that's all that's it that's all that ties him to the crime that's all that ties him to the murder that's all that ties him to anything is this confession and this confession to me personally is plain as day as crystal clear as it could possibly be fake this was clearly coerced and fake and because he was mentally handicapped he had an IQ of 72 it made him easily suggestible more suggestible than most people would be in the same situation so Jesse was interrogated by the police and Inspector Gary Gitchell, who I, I'll talk more about him later. I love that. Last he was interrogated. Name. Yeah, he looks like Doctor Phil too. He does. Doctor oh Phil God. looking I was, motherfucker. I was gonna say that they say they that Doctor Phil looking motherfucker over here. <laughs> That's funny. I was gonna say that. So Jesse was interrogated for twelve hours. Only the two hours where he admitted to helping Damien and Jason kill the boys were recorded on tape. Oh, the other hours of interrogation where he repeatedly said he had nothing to do with the murders and was innocent were either not recorded or were not shown to the jury. And there is also evidence in the documentary that shows you that Inspector Gary Gitchell, this Dr. Phil looking motherfucker, was clearly asking questions and leading Jesse to the answers that Gary and the rest of the police department wanted to hear. Here are my examples of that. Okay, When Jesse is asked to identify one of the boys in one of the pictures, Gary shows them of their mutilated bodies. Jesse identifies the boy wrong. He says it's Michael Moore. Gary corrects him verbally, and you can clearly hear this on the tape, and he says that it's Chris Byers. Jesse also said the murders happened around 12 o'clock, which is not correct at all. Gitchell has to correct him on this as well. So how could a kid who was involved with a murder not remember precisely what time the murders occurred? Or what the kid looked like that he supposedly ran down and brought back to the murder scene to be slaughtered? And how was it unusual again that when he was given the picture of one of the dead kids to react the way that he did? I mean, they were acting like it was some kind of admission of guilt or something where he's staring at this picture of a mutilated dead body of a kid and he's staring at it it in complete disbelief for a few minutes. 
I mean, I would have a similar reaction because I could not believe what I was looking at. For me personally, this confession was about as fake as fake news. It was just a bunch of bullshit. There was not, there really wasn't much there. There's even an expert who uh, is an expert in police coercion, and he was saying there was plenty of evidence suggests, to suggest that this was not a true confession. And then you also have the little bit of evidence uh, that is that is uh, revealed by uh, Damien, Dan, I think it was Jason Baldwin's uh, defense attorneys. Yeah, and I I, I want to like speak to that uh, whole uh, the the professional that they had on uh, false confessions that came in there. Um, yeah. How they treated this guy was just they treated him like garbage. They treated him like shit. Okay, this guy yeah. this guy was from California. I think he, I think he graduated from. Uh, he some some university in California, and the guy, the uh, prosecutor's just sitting there going, "Well, I don't know how you guys do things in California, but here, whenever someone says that they murdered someone, then that's a confession." Blah blah blah, and it's like, what's up with all that shit? I don't know how. You, like, well, then before when they were like, "How much did you get paid?" Yeah, they started. How much they, did you get paid to be, to to be on the stand here? They started. They started basically going into this this uh, professional of uh, false confessions. They started going into like, okay, maybe he has ulterior motives for even being on the stand because uh, how much you know there because he was basically saying I get paid three hundred dollars an hour if I have to go to trial, but if I don't go to trial, I only get paid a hundred dollars an hour. So the prosecutor was saying, well, so so basically you're saying that uh, you were having you. You basically came up with what the people who hired you want to hear so you could go to trial and get your $300 kind of deal. So they were trying to find ways to discredit the witness, basically. Or not the witness, but the, the expert testimony. Yeah. And I don't think they really did that great of a job at it. And But even though there was just this flimsy confession tape, that's all they really had, which... When you go into the, there's some evidence that was revealed in uh, the Jason Baldwin and Jamie Nichols trial where his, his defense attorneys were saying things like, okay, well, the bodies of the boys were found in this area that is notorious for being full of mosquitoes. These boys had not a single mosquito bite on them. So how were they killed at that time, at night, in that in that location, and there's no mosquito bites on them. They were more than likely killed in some other location and then dumped. Well, not only the mosquito bites, there was no blood in the, well, yeah, in the soil. Well, yeah. Well, I'll get to that when we do talk about the other trial. But I'm talking about with the whole thing with the mosquito bites thing. It's like, when you hear that, it's like, well, even this confession, even if you believe it, is bogus. Because there's no, it, it doesn't make any sense that the murders happen right there. So, but the jury, like pretty much all the juries in this particular documentary, they already had their minds made up before they even went into the courtroom. So Jesse was convicted. But what's crazy about his case, too, is he was convicted of second-degree murder for, all the, for the other two boys, but from what we heard in the documentary, the only thing that he admitted to was chasing down Michael Moore and bringing him back to the crime scene. 
to the location where the kids were supposedly killed. He didn't do anything else with the other kids. So it's like, how is he convicted of that, those other two crimes as well, when he didn't, doesn't, he didn't even admit to doing that? It's a witch hunt. Exactly, it really is. <laughs> it's a modern-day witch hunt. So that's the first part of the film was about Jesse Miskelly Jr. and his trial. And they, you know, interviewed him and they talked to his parents and they talked to uh, his girlfriend. Yeah. And he was uh, there's there's a funny scene where he's talking on the phone to her and he's talking about his dreams that he had that you know we we made love in the bathroom. No, he said you we know, were we screwing. We were screwing. We were screwing in the we were screwing in the bathroom. We screwed in the. Yeah, and then they show his dad, who's another character. Yet again, yeah. reminds me of my dad. His dad, his uh, Jesse's dad, is in the living room uh, with his girlfriend. And you know, these got these. I mean, this is just like your typical like redneck looking home. I mean, yeah. they're, they're smoking cigarettes during the interview. You know, yeah. And um, uh, so his dad's in the living room with his with his girlfriend. So his dad has a girlfriend, just to not confuse you guys. It's not his wife, it's his uh-huh. girlfriend, whatever. And uh, his girlfriend, his dad's girlfriend, saying, if he was guilty, he's on his own. We won't give him nothing. And then the dad interrupts, and he's like, no, don't say that. I'd, I'd still give him money. And she's like, no, you wouldn't. He's like, yes, I would. He's my flesh and blood. And she's like, well, well, we're going to have a problem over this right here because even if it was my kid, I wouldn't blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't care. You don't turn your back on blood. I just thought that was interesting. Yep. You know, it, it was interesting. That, that was an interesting dynamic, you know. And how, like, that's how not used to giving interviews these people were, that the girlfriend, even on camera, was like, well, we're going to have a problem over this later <laughs> on. You know, It's just like, damn. And then the whole scene where they sing happy birthday to uh, Jesse on camera, which is honestly really awkward. Yeah. Because it looked like a lot of the people that were there weren't really into it. If you've ever seen the show Trailer Park Boys, which is based in... I've heard of that. Yeah, if yeah I've heard of it. Based in Canada. Just imagine Trailer Park Boys, but like in the South. <laughs> that's, that's what this shit literally <laughs> reminds me of in so many ways. Like a lot of the people on here. Not saying yeah. they're bad people or there's anything wrong with them, but like that, hey, that's just, that's the region and that's how it is over there. And, you know, yeah. that's how I grew so up. What, so what, what, are, what are your thoughts on the confession tape? Well, I really liked the guy. The guy that they brought up, uh, the professional, who was the the liberal from California, who you know, God forbid, he say anything. You know, I mean, I don't even know if he was liberal, but I mean, that's just how they were already painting him. Like, oh, I don't know how you do it in California. You know, I already know. I already know what that implication means. Uh, the South typically views New York and California as the two scourges of the United States, and that. Uh, they're they're disconnected from the rest of the values of uh, Middle America, but I felt like the guy, the expert on the false confessions, uh, pretty much said it best. You know, you, you, the the record is incomplete. We have all these hours of uh, interrogation that we have no record of, and then the whole thing about um, him uh, Jesse not knowing exactly what time these kids were murdered, and at first he said noon. And um, then they're like, well, it couldn't have been noon. The kids would have been in school. And so uh, Ghibli or Gitchell or whatever his name was, uh, the investigator, 
he starts putting all this information in his head about, no, it was at this time, at night. And so then from then on, anytime Jesse said anything about the murder, he said at night. Cause it, and they showed how it's almost like the detective had put this information in his head because Jesse was not a bright person. Yeah. And that's how easily it was to influence and he him. And we don't know what happened before. They could have said something like, you know, just give us, you know, the answers. We'll let you go. You know, go to your family. Which just, I've, uh, I've seen enough of the Investigation Discovery Channel. <laughs> or stuff on Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, there, were, there were some cases we saw on Final Appeal. The, yeah. The Final Appeal that, segment yep. that were very similar to this. Yeah, where, where police officers are very stressed out over a case. They feel a lot of pressure from the community. And it's basically like, look, kid, we need a confession if you play ball, we'll make sure you don't get the death penalty kind of thing. Yeah. And you're fucked. You're stuck yep. between a rock and a hard place because it's like, you know, you didn't do it, but but here you are in custody. So what do you do? You know, it's, exactly. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's amazing to think that this shit can still happen in this country, but it does. Well, yeah, especially the witch hunt aspect of this. And this becomes really prevalent in the second part of the documentary, which is all about the trial of Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. And for me personally, the evidence just was not there at all to convict these two boys of these crimes. Clothing fibers that you can't for sure tie to either boy, absolute garbage. The confessions of the people on the stand, two of which refused to be photographed, and the other was a proven liar, bullshit and slander. I mean, the, the confessions of the two girls who I overheard this and I heard this at a softball game and I heard that, you know, that's completely inadmissible, in, in my opinion. That's just rumors. And you can hear that they were little kids, too. They weren't yeah. like, you know, even adolescents. They were kids. Yeah. And then the other guy, the, the defense, the defense for Jason Baldwin actually had got in contact with the counselor who was there at the juvenile hall uh, who knew that guy and knew he was full of shit because he, the, the counselor himself, told him this guy who went on the stand and gave this confession that Jason admitted to these crimes and he told him that he told him all about those crimes he told him all about the case so the counselor knows the guy personally, knows he's full of shit, and you could kind of tell he was bullshitting anyway on the, when you watch the documentary. This guy clearly does not look like he's telling the truth. Uh, he's just, he's... Especially he, when he got, uh, the, the, the defense attorney came in and started, you know, poking holes in his argument. Like, the way he was reacting to that was totally, it just gave it away, if you ask me. And the prosecution, they knew about this. They knew that the counselor had evidence that suggests that he's not a reliable witness, and they went forward with him anyway. So it went like this. So Jesse Miss Kelly's uh, confession was all they really had to go on for, exactly. for the three kids. Okay, so Jesse gets convicted basically because they need to convict somebody. He's not the brightest bulb in the drawer. Uh, or however the fucking saying goes. Uh, <laughs> bulb in the drawer. <laughs> I keep my light bulbs in a drawer when I'm not... Well, that's just ironic yeah. now. It's not the brightest bulb in the drawer. Yeah, uh, it's kind of ironic. I'm not the brightest bulb in the drawer either, so maybe <laughs> I can relate to him. Um, 
So anyway, he he gets he gets convicted, and so all they have to really have a slam dunk case against the other two is Jesse's confession, which was which was weak and insubstantial to begin with. So they have a made up a, a coerced confession to pin down two other boys. And then their other evidence that they had, because the big thing in the movie was that that Jesse was refusing to testify against the other two boys because yep. he knew that it was bullshit and that it wasn't it wasn't a true story that these these the, the investigator was making. Basically, he fabricated the shit, and so Jesse refused to testify, and so the. Uh, the uh, the attorneys on the the family of the kids side who were murdered the prosecution prosecution they're like well don't worry we have you know we have other evidence and their other evidence was fibers on the uh, on the boys uh they were clothing fibers that that could ha- that could match like one of the boys parents or something one of the boys owned which but, n- was admittedly even by the prosecution which was w- they were admittedly weak pieces of evidence and but they but the guy was trying to sell it up though to the parents yeah he was like I, you know fibers which i believe are are, are more uh, reliable than uh hair, hair. yeah <laughs> and then they also had a knife that they found in a lake it, yeah it's just a knife it was just some knife they found in a lake behind jason's house that's all it was. And they that, conveniently, coincidentally found a fucking knife. And then they're trying to say this is the murder weapon. And then those weak, without really truthfully saying that, but insinuating that it is. Yeah. And then the weak ass confessions from those girls who wouldn't appear on. And then the guy who was in Juvie Hall. Yeah. So that was the only evidence that those paper thin strings of evidence was all they had besides a false coerced confession. Oh, and then the whole thing where, you know, Damien's a, a Satanist and he's into devil worship and, you know, which isn't evidence, but it's definitely enough to influence a jury. Yeah. You know, so that that was so absurd. That whole sequence of events where that guy that doctor who's supposed expert in the occult who's talking about satanism and sacrifice and all this shit and then when the defense attorney puts him on the stand he totally grills him and he's like he points out where he got his uh degree he's like did you dial one eight hundred to get your degree? you know to get your degree this is a by phone phone college <laughs> It's like, did you take any classes? Yeah, he's like, how many classes did you take to get your master degree in between 1986 and 1988 or whatever? Or like 1982 or 84 or something like that, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, I've already stated that. And he's like, answer the question. How many classes did you take to get your master's degree between these years? And he goes, zero. Total quack. Absolutely... 100% a quack, and nobody in their right mind should have ever taken anything that guy said seriously as soon as he said that. As soon as he admitted that. People want to believe what they want to believe. The satanic panic was strong there. They're trying to tie him in like Wicca, and I like how Damien describes Wicca and and basically shuts down everyone who thinks it's Satanism. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, he 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 made some mistakes. I mean, there's that a moment where he says he said yes to something he didn't mean to, which made him look bad because he was daydreaming. Um, he should not have taken the stand himself. That that was not a good idea. It was a good. It, it worked out for him at first, but as it went, the trial went on. It really started to not really work for him. It started to go against him. And yeah, the evidence was just extremely flimsy. I don't even think there was any evidence. There wasn't any. You got a knife you found behind Jason's house in the lake. It's just a knife. Nothing ties it at all to Damien or Jason directly or to the murders. No blood was found on the knife. No DNA. Nothing. Absolutely fucking nothing was found on that knife. It was just a knife. The buyer's knife that was admit- admitted, though, that was a more admissible piece of evidence because it actually had blood and DNA in it. So let's so the- let's kind of explain. Like let's let's stay like let's go back on track here where we're at as far as the case and kind of like what's going on here. So so Jesse has his trial. And then, mm-hmm. and then, what's the next sequence of events that happens? So they well, it's the it's the, the trial of Damien and Jason, right? Yeah. So so yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't don't try to outsew me, Mike. I'll outsew you any day of the week. Uh, all right. So the buyer's knife. It's John Mark Byers, and one of the dads of one of the boys who was murdered. He had a knife, a hunting knife, that he, I think he gave to some of the people who were working on the documentary, who then gave it to Gary Gitchell. And Gary Gitchell noticed there was something that looked like blood in, in one of the hinges, and he had it checked out. And the DNA evidence came back, and it matched, you know, of course, Byers' DNA, but it also matched that of his son, which would make sense because, you know, they're related. So the two kind of canceled each other out, so it was kind of hard to really pin it on him. But the defense was trying to, you know, point people in that direction, which actually makes more sense because it's it's a knife that has blood on it. Could be the kids. He's a jeweler. He knows how to really use the knife really well. Uh, unlike uh, Damien and Jason, who these people are... I'm supposed to believe that they did this. They did an intricate delicate procedure at night in the water and didn't leave a single drop of blood behind and the uh procedure that mike is talking about is uh they cut the skin prepare yourself folks this is i wasn't even gonna mention it but go ahead they uh (laughs) took one of the penises of the kids and they um cut the skin off of the penis and um just just remove the skin Itself, no, uh, in like a a with with surgeon like precision, they were able to do this, and yeah. it was nighttime, and they were in water, and there were mosquitoes around, and it was estimated that it took all of, uh, it was it, it was being accused that it took about like five to ten minutes to do, which they then had a medical expert come in, uh, on the defense side, and they grilled the medical expert, and they said. Could you do this job, this intricate job of of surgically removing the skin from this person's penis in this amount of time in the dark, in water, 
mosquitoes around you and, and, and the medical examiner basically said it would be very difficult to near impossible for him to do it and he's, yeah. he's a medical doctor I think they the mutilation did not occur there it happened somewhere else it had to have but I'm sure for the dad, John Byers, that was a hurtful infl- implication that oh, yeah. they were trying to make, saying that he could have... But it's him. understandable that they would do that, yeah. though. Yeah, I mean, and then he wasn't helping matters either by his confusing uh, answers to questions that were asked to him when he was on the stand. He gave a different answer to the uh, Gary Gitchell, and then they're grilling him on it and he's all like well i didn't know at the time like you know like you you said you didn't cut yourself you didn't use the knife you didn't cut anything with it and then he's all like well later i i I remembered that i cut my thumb and it's like okay (laughs) it just kind of comes across as a little bit which you know i'm a i'm a very like airheaded forgetful person so like god help me if i ever have to go on the stand and well yeah yeah perfectly recall some piece of information that Uh is so insignificant to me i'd probably fuck up too so i I, yeah you know it's hard i mean it's not as bad or as damning in my opinion as the next uh uh piece from the documentary that I want to discuss and uh, because everything else we pretty much covered with the knife and all that other stuff but one thing I wanted to mention is the closing argument that the prosecuting attorney had and the whole demonstration he had was absolutely ridiculous <laughs> He it's a laugh riot where he goes in and brings out a fucking grapefruit or some shit and takes the knife and slaps it against it it says, look, it leaves a mark that's similar to the one on the boy's skin. And then he goes in and takes the other buyer's knife and does it. And that's just straight across. I'm like, it's a fucking grapefruit. <laughs> fruit has a different texture. And it's different. The skin of a fruit is completely different than the skin of a human being. How anybody could buy that shit is beyond me. For fuck's sake. Yeah, it's almost like you'd have to have your mind already made up that these people were guilty to buy something like that. Oh, wait, that's what happened. Exactly. Now, if you thought that was that was ridiculous, this, this turns things up to 11. This is one of the most unbelievable cases of gross incompetence from a police department I can think of. I remember when I first saw this film, this sequence in particular just pissed me off. I was just like, how the fuck can you be this incompetent at your fucking job? So this is the Bojangles incident, as well as the missing evidence. This was particularly damning, and it showcased the total incompetence of the police department at the time. Around the same time, the police were looking for potential suspects that could have killed the three boys. An incident was reported at, the, at a local Bojangles restaurant that was very close in proximity to the crime scene. A black man was reported by the owner of the establishment as loitering in the women's restroom with blood dripping down his arm and mud on his feet. Which, to me, sounds pretty suspicious. The police were called to the scene, but the officer just went through the drive-thru instead. And <laughs> didn't go in and check, and didn't file a report either. So you have this podunk lady, who's all clueless. 
She went to just imagining this is just unbelievable to me that a cop would get called to the scene of crime, see the scene of something, not really the scene of the crime, but the scene of some kind of incident that could fit with the crime they're trying to solve. And and I don't think it was actually yeah, it was around the same time, you know, the boys were were dead and they were looking for somebody who killed them. And it was I think it was like the same day. And she's driving up to the Bojangles and just gets some chicken at the fucking drive through. Instead of doing her damn job. And then she's asked why she didn't do anything. Why she didn't make a big deal out of this. And she's all like, it wasn't my jurisdiction. Which is absolutely horseshit. Because even if it wasn't, the incident occurred within miles of the crime scene. This was something that any competent officer would have looked into immediately. Not get some fucking chicken at the drive-thru. And if that isn't bad enough... These podunk police, they actually lost evidence. Oh, my God. There was a blood sample that was eventually recovered at the scene, and the department lost it. They fucking lost a piece of evidence. Yeah, there's no guarantee the blood would have matched any of the three boys, but there's a chance that it might have, and the podunk police lost it. I mean, the incompetence here is it's stunning. I mean, it's astonishing. How, how, how this... Like, I see you don't even have words. <laughs> You're just speechless. I know it is. Like, you know, there's so many fucking cases. Like, I just go back to the back when I used to watch the Investigation Discovery Channel all the time. If there was any kind of shit remotely like this going on in any other case, the tri- it would be a mistrial. It would be thrown out. You know, yeah. because uh, of inco- the various incompetencies. But here, they just proceeded with it. Like, it was a legitimate, you know, yeah, no, we haven't botched anything. Like, this is, we've done everything right, and this is a fair trial, and it, but none of that was true. It was all bullshit. Exactly. There was nothing about this trial that was fair and done to the letter of the law. And then you got Gitchell and his whole uh, retirement thing that, yeah. that, that plays into it, like one of the investigator yeah. guy. Yeah, Inspector, the the Dr. Phil-looking motherfucker. Yeah, Dr. Phil, Jeffrey Tambor-looking motherfucker. So he was heading into retirement after this case, and he had a lot riding on it. I mean, his reputation in West Memphis was at stake, as was any potential political aspirations post his retirement. You know, run for mayor. I, I like the line one of the parents of one of the kids who was convicted, one of the West Memphis Three, said... You know, yeah, he can be a mayor. Yeah, the mayor of hell. (laughs) (laughs) So his name was already being dragged through the mud by the locals during the months where he and his department had absolutely no leads and no suspects for the murders. In order to save face, I believe he and the department, they put targets on Damien, Jason, and Jesse's backs, took Jesse in, tricked and coerced him into a confession that Gary himself led Jesse to give the exact answers he wanted to hear, and then also spread rumors about Damien and Jason and their involvement in the satanic cults and so on to get the whole community in hysterics. They were the perfect foils for the small town backwoods justice. All three of them were poor. They had a poor reputation in the community and were easily railroaded. And because of the satanic panic at the time, as well as the horrific nature of these crimes, any jury member from this particular area would have said that these three boys were guilty no matter what. Their minds were made up before they even deliberated together and delivered the final verdict. 
And Gitchens was celebrating afterwards. He was like, I'm going out on top. Yeah, he didn't give a fuck. He's even doing this thing like he's like sensationalizing things like one of the first things you heard in the in the documentary. Out of all the cases I've I've been a part of, you know, this isn't this isn't a 10. This is an 11. You know, cuz he's talking about how how much he thinks he'll be able to convict. Yeah. He's like it's an 11. How much uh, evidence? How how reliable the evidence is? It's an 11. It was fucking zero. That's a better score. Because there was zero. There was nothing. There was nothing that you could make an argument that was 100% proof of either of these three boys' guilt. That either of these three boys killed those three kids. There was nothing now- that the prosecution presented to me that believably, realistically, and 100% proved that they were guilty. Total miscarriage of justice. You know, uh, Damien, was was he the most uh, likable, um, innocent uh, person as far as, like, how he came off how he could have, no. you know, how he could have, uh, could he have done things smarter on the stand? Uh, yes, you know, and no, he was not the most likable person in the world. He, quite frankly to me, seemed a bit damn creepy, if I may be so blunt. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he was he was definitely a goth kid. Yeah, you know? he was a goth kid, yeah. He was your typical goth kid. He Anti-social he, he, teenager. He came across as very aloof on the stand. I mean, I, I guess after being grilled for so many hours and, and just doing so much time, I guess you just develop an air of aloofness, or maybe he was just he was just always that way. But he seemed very just nonchalant about the whole thing, and that that probably didn't help him at all. Um, but as you saw from the other two kids who who didn't act that way, you know. Um, he had Miss Kelly who just looked down the whole time and, you know, whatever. It didn't help them either. So, I mean, it's like probably no matter how he acted, they would have... Well, Miss Kelly, well, that, I mean, even his parent, his Miss Kelly's um, mom, really, his stepmother, she said it didn't matter what he did. You know, he could have looked up and they would have they would have yeah, said something about him. Yeah, they why is he looking up? Because he was looking down the whole time during the case. He was doing what they told him to do. His, his, his defense attorneys told him to look down, I think. And then with Jason, when he's interviewed by his, by his, uh, by the defense, one of the defense attorneys, and he says, uh, if you were to talk to the parents, like, what, what would you say to them? And he pauses for a, a while and then says, I don't know. And I don't really think that's a problem. Some people have looked into that and said, oh, that means like he's guilty. I'm like, how? He just said, I don't know. I wouldn't know what to say. Especially since he knows for sure firsthand how these parents feel and what their emotions are towards him. So he rightfully would say, I don't know. Because whatever he could say, he could just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you know, 
that, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. And they'd be like, you're sorry? How dare you be sorry? You fucking killed my kid, you son of a bitch. You know, exactly, you know. When, when, when presented with a question like that, hey, what would you... What would you say to uh, the parents of these three murdered children when you're put on the spot like that? That's not a put on the spot kind of question. That's no. that, that is a I need a few months to think about a, the exact response I would give these people kind of thing. I couldn't think off the top of my head. Uh, if someone asked me that question, what would you say to the parents of uh, of these kids that were murdered? I, first, uh, first thing, I, oh, my God, that would be a first thing I would say. Like, oh my god, what the fuck would probably be the second thing I would say. You know, I don't fuck, dude, just give me a second, you know? I need need some time, that's kind of a bit of gravity to that question there. I need some time to think about, you know, and he's like a little kid and he's a dumb little kid at that, so it's like, what, do you think something profound's gonna come out of this kid's mouth? You think he's gonna find the- About the 16 year old, yeah. You think he's gonna find this perfect thing to say that's just gonna put a nice little bow? On his innocence? No, he's a dumb kid. He's gonna. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I mean, shit. What do you What do you want from him? But Damien, he's the smart one, though. He's the he's, yeah. he's the brainy one, and he said some shit. You know. So as a there as, were some things that he said though that really did make him look like he was smarter than anyone that was, you know, trying to get him to show his guilt. I mean, there, there, there were some of the scenes where he's on the stand where he's just like the guy who's trying to say, "Oh, well, when you were interviewed by this this officer and and you gave this answer, you know," and then he's all like, "No, uh, I didn't say that I was in Wicca for like five years or anything like that." And you know, he th- that was actually really good on his part. He did, he he did a great job with that when he was on the stand because he really just showed. How they were trying to lead him into questions and all that kind of stuff. But well, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't help his case when the film pretty much ends with a quote from him. Yeah. It's a memorable quote. I want to read this quote because this stuck out to me like a sore thumb and, and, and it didn't it did not help him at all. Um, but I mean, I guess this just shows. The ex- it's the type of person he is. Is the type of personality he has. I mean, he was even making, cracking sort of dark jokes like that before he said that. Remember, he said, yeah. "What's your, what's your kids, what's the first words your kids gonna say? You know, is it gonna be not guilty? So like, I don't know. More like uh, probably more like capital murder." Yeah, and then he's in the uh, he's in in the room with his uh, his defense team, and uh, he's like, I think one of them said, like, "What would you?" What would you say to uh, Jason Baldwin, uh, or if you, or what would you do, or what would you say to Jason Baldwin, or ever, or, or, or was it Miss Kelly, Jesse, Miss Kelly, or whatever, whichever one? And he goes, "I'd probably strangle him." And I'm just sitting there going, "Uh, yeah, dude, probably not the best thing to say if you're trying to uh, get acquitted of murder." I don't think he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I know, but. Like like the parents, you know, in that kind of instance, you're not thinking as clearly as as you might be. Well, I just think if it, you weren't in this situation, I just think being in, in the court system for that long, be you know, being there for hours and hours, I think you just get bored and your your personality starts to come out more and more. 
and yeah. you forget to be all like politically correct about everything and you exactly and you forget <laughs> the cameras are on so you know you, you you and these documentary filmmakers and shit you know they can edit they can take three hours of footage where he's not really doing anything. They take the one kind of fucked up thing he says and slide it in the movie and make him look like this piece of shit, which they didn't. Yeah. They didn't really do, but no. there were little moments sprinkled in that just made him look I, not in the best light. Yeah, but that's that's his fault. Yeah, you know, um, and I'm not going to give anything away, but you'll see for yourself. You know, the the evolution of, of Damien. And, and and his you know his character and, and who then he is. what he says at the end definitely doesn't help anything at the end of the movie i think it's a good quote but you know i it, it's one of those things think about it, he's in a small town you know he he's poor well let me say the quote and then that all that yeah. stuff you're saying now will make sense <laughs> okay. so the end of the movie you know they're convict they're all convicted of murder uh they're all sentenced to life damien gets the death penalty um, Damien saying uh, his last quote at the end of the documentary is he says uh, I knew from when I was real small that people were going to know who I was I always had that feeling I just never knew how they were going to learn I kind of enjoy it because now even after I die people are going to remember me forever they're going to talk about me for years people in West Memphis will tell stories it will be sort of like I'm the West Memphis boogeyman kids are going to be looking under their bed oh Damien might be under there <laughs> yeah it, it, it's uh it just it's the kind of person he is he's got that he's a name you know he's he's a golf kid he's got that kind of just sardonic sense of humor i don't really see that much in that i mean he was totally being sarcastic you could tell <laughs> It wasn't like he was being, like, dead serious. Yeah, but then on the other hand, it's like, well, I mean, or is he, like, fucking sick in the head? Like, which is it? How do you know? We don't know this person. Well, well you don't know, but, I, I mean, I, I, I would say he's not... I, I I probably would not say he's insa- insane. I've been, I've, I've been around people in my life that have been kind of kooky like that, but they're not crazy. They're just weird and there's nothing wrong with being weird but whenever i'm just saying that yeah being he probably he probably when he was he's 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 18 he probably relished in the a little bit in the the fame you know this kind of thing um he was a poor kid didn't have much Nobody really knew who he was. And so I, I think he relished in that here. And maybe a little bit too much. Absolutely. But, you know, I, it's just one of those things that's like, it's all about his mindset. Maybe that's how he copes with it, with being sentenced to death. And also, this is something he said, like, immediately after things. After this stressful trial so I don't know if I have anything more to say about this particular installment of this case Is yeah it, I, I don't have anything I don't I'm trying to think if there's anything else I mean um, there's a there was a lot that went on in this movie well there's a lot to take in yeah absolutely 
Uh, I don't think I've seen a film with this much trial footage that has been this entertaining, or, or like, no, I don't know if entertaining is the right word, but this interesting and not boring. So, because um, there's a lot of films that have trial footage and it's just gets tedious as, after a while. This isn't one of those movies. So, yeah, it, it's. Let's let's. I personally would say it's a masterpiece. It's a great film. It, it really is, and we're gonna we're gonna try to do monthly installments on this, so you folks can figure out what happens to the West Mem- West Memphis Three. Because uh, I don't know, and I don't want Mike to give anything away, but uh, there's def. This is definitely not the end of the story. Am I right? Oh, absolutely not. Well, that's cool. I- I'm looking forward to. Uh, Figuring out what happens in the future here. Uh, let's 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 lighten things up a little bit. Let's do some news of the bazaar, shan't we? Uh, we shan, we shan, <laughs> we shan. <laughs> yeah, we shan. Yeah. We shan't. No, we shan. We shan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, this is a fairly recent one. This has been shared on Facebook. You might have already seen this if you're on Facebook a bunch. Um, this one is all about. This uh, viral thing that's gone, this thing that's gone viral about this lamb, this deformed lamb that was born in uh, Lady Ferrer, uh, Ferre, I don't know how to fucking say it, in Eastern Province, South Africa. And a lot of the people there, the locals, believe that this is a half human, half beast. And they're claiming that this deformed lamb it was sent by the devil. The devil. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, going off this article here, um, for some bizarre reason, we are infinitely interested in weird things, even if it's really disgusting. We just want to have a look at it or learn more, just because it's out of the ordinary. If you scroll through Facebook and someone has shared a video of an injury or something oddly disgusting, we can't stop and take a look. Or we stop oh, and take stop. a look. Where did where did can't come from, Josh? You fucking idiot. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I wouldn't stop and take a look at that kind of thing. Especially like those videos that people like. People like watching these videos where people like pop pus. Oh, God. What the fuck is wrong with those people? (laughs) And what the fuck is this image you sent me of this this creature? Holy shit. I'm like scrolling down here. What the hell is this? (laughs) I know. Okay, so locals in Lady Frere in Eastern Province, South Africa, South Africa, have reportedly feared this animal since it was born, labeling it half-human, half-beast, and claiming it was sent by the devil. It does look a bit human-like, but leaning towards the middle-aged man who sunbathed too much in Ibiza, drank too much beer, and passed out on the beach. Uh, those living in the village where the lamb was born claimed a combination of bestiality and witchcraft led to its existence, and even got people to test it. God knows what for. We can confirm this is not a hoax photo, but that the severely deformed lamb was born by a sheep in Lady Frere this week, which at a glance resembles a human form. Dr. Lababablo, blah, 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 some fucking weird name here, director of uh, veterinary services said. Lubabalo. He continued, uh, it is not, however, human, but a deformed stillborn lamb sired by a sheep and was subsequently infected by a Rift Valley fever at an early stage of its pregnancy. It is worth noting that a sheep has 28 pairs of chromosomes while humans have 20, 
three pairs, which is important in dispelling the myth that a union of sheep ovum and human sperm can lead to the development of a viable life form. Quote, the deformed lamb exhibits signs that are consistent with an early fotal development. I want to say that's fetal, but they, it's fotal development that went wrong as a result of a viral infection and nothing more than that. Uh, so there you have it, people of Lady Freer, not a drunk, shriveled Ibiza party man. At the, at the time, party man, party man. At the time the lamb was conceived, which would have been either December 2016 or January 2017, there would have been a lot of rainfall in the area, bringing midges and mosquitoes, which only carry the RVF virus. The virus which infects the sheep's blood found its way via the maternal blood into the uterus and into the fotus during a critical stage of pregnancy. Uh, the elders, when they saw it, said it was sent by the devil and was born after a coupling between a man and a sheep, and then there was a panic. Satanic panic. Many people were afraid and will not be happy until until it is burned. Which is funny because well, when Mike sent that picture to me, I said, oh my God, kill it with fire. And uh, <laughs> not knowing that that's what these people want as well. Uh, well, I mean, if you think about it, like if it was Satan... <laughs> Who did that? What's the point of sending some dead sheep man? That's not really going to serve any purpose. <laughs> it's got powers beyond its deadness. It can do things. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So, it is an ugly looking thing. Oh, it really it's, is. It's fucking hideous. We need to start posting pictures of this shit that we talk about. I, keep, I always forget. You could. Yeah, I always forget to post the pictures. So the next uh, little uh, bit of for the news of the bizarre segment is one Josh picked out. That's actually my brother. About- my brother has been doing a great job oh. uh, digging up these. Uh, cool. I knew that he'd be the man for this because he's always finding weird shit even before we ever started doing this. So like he sends me a few articles a week. So uh, I'm pretty. We're pretty good on the news of the bizarre. Thanks to him. <laughs> thanks, Josh's brother, David. David Cannon. Thank Sh- you, David. Shout out to uh, David. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, so yeah, this is about the great lizard penis fraud. Oh my god! The title alone just grabs you. Are just we trying? Boom, to, right are there. we trying to overcompensate for all that period talk we did from the news of bizarre few weeks ago <laughs> with all the penises on this episode? I don't know. So monitor lizard genitalia have been sold as Hatha Jodi, a tantric root thought to bring good luck. Hatha Jodi is a root that, if you use your imagination, can look like those two people holding hands, perhaps in prayer. In part because of this appearance, in some tantric traditions, is believed to bring the bearer great luck. But the root is also very rare, and only found in remote areas in Nepal and India. Which brings us to lizard penises. Of course. Yeah, of course. Understandably so, it brings you right to lizard penises. Naturally. According to the World Animal Protection... Poachers have been selling the penises of monitor lizards in the place of Hatha Jodi as a massive fraud that has led to numerous recent raids across India. In one bust, officials seized 210 dried lizard penises. Imagine that's your job. You're just the penis buster. Penis poacher. Penis. (laughs) Um, I'm also imagining like if this was like a fraud segment on Unsolved Mystery. God, Stack would instantly ask for a raise that day. I'm not getting paid enough for this bullshit. (laughs) To talk about lizard penises. The penises have made their way onto online retailers as varied as Amazon, eBay, Alibaba, and Etsy. 
Scientists at Manchester Metropol- Metropolitan University in England, 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 man, our reading skills are some of the, down. Some of the hot the Jody they found online was fact, in fact, derived from monitor lizards. Other items were plastic moldings of lizard penises. Oh. The organization said that the unwitting penis donors frequently came to gruesome ends. Oh. That uh, some will have their throats slit or their skulls smashed in before their genitals genitals are removed. I I, I flubbed there because I, that was just so horrible. Holy shit! I had a hard time like reading so, that. This is like such a parallel to the case we just talked about. Yeah. Oh my god. And others will still be alive when this process begins. Oh How much god. could a fake hot the Jody fetch on the open market? More than two hundred pounds, around two hundred fifty dollars. Poaching the monitor lizards is illegal under Indian law, and authorities said they were trying to put an end to the problem. If left unchecked, Anuruddha Mukherjee, the lead lead investigator in the case, said in a statement, this demand could grow to the extent that it pushes some wild populations over the edge. Now, as an animal lover, uh, I I hate to read that last part. I mean, I I guess when I first heard of uh, just uh, a legion of lizard penises being sold, I didn't really... Uh, take into account the fact that they would have to be slain first yep. to, to obtain said penises. And um, that's just awful, you know. I, man, I'm telling you, after watching that documentary and hearing about this, like, I'm going to be start looking at my dick differently from now on. I'm not going to take it for granted anymore. I'm going to look down at it and be like, hey, little guy, you doing doing good down there? And then I'll just I'll move on, you know, like, Jesus, man. Like, oh, God. That's horrible. That's awful. So speaking of unsolved mysteries um, and unexplained mysteries, uh, we have a new little short segment for you called People Who Should Become Unsolved Mysteries. And uh, this is a kind of tongue... This is pretty much a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. But anyway, uh, I peruse eBay... Every now and then, because I'm trying to look for uh, more Unsolved Mysteries uh, DVDs and things like that, and all the, all kinds of other stuff. And on eBay, I find some absolutely crazy shit. Like you know, some of the like people selling things for like ridiculous prices that are just unbelievable. For one, the box set, Unsolved Mysteries box set, which Josh has. I don't. I do. Own I'd it. like to have it. You can't. But um, <laughs> I, I saw to it that nobody will, will sell you one, so I'll always be on <laughs> you. So um, there's a guy on eBay who's charging $1,500 for one of these boxes. For the sets. Ultimate Collection. For the Ultimate Collection. Holy shit, guys. I am sitting on a little brick of investment here at my house on my bookshelf here that I'm looking at. N- 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 not really. <laughs> These are just ridiculously overpriced items. Um, now, I was telling Mike before, now, if, if this was a sealed copy of the Ultimate Collection, maybe, maybe, for collector's sake, I could see a $1,500 price tag, but it's not even sealed. It's fucking open. It's used. It's a used... DVD box set. Can you? Yeah. It, it, could you ever imagine a used DVD box set selling for that much money? As as useless and, and throwaway as DVDs are nowadays. 
I wouldn't say they're that useless and that throwaway. I mean, I use well, not DVDs, for you. DVDRs to burn uh, stuff onto DVD, and and uh, I also, you know, I buy quite a few DVDs. Say, yeah, they're, they're easier to get nowadays for cheap than Blu-rays. You're kind of an anomaly, though, because I'd say most people don't even use DVDs. Uh, anymore. It depends. It depends on the type of collector, and it also depends on the genre. There's a lot of horror DVD collectors out there, just like there's still a lot of horror VHS collectors out there. So, um, $1,500 for a year. It's ridiculous. It's too much. That's crazy. Um, Especially when there's other box sets that are going for a lot less. So, another crazy thing is this guy who's a scumbag. I hate people like this. Who was selling a 45-disc set of Unsolved Mysteries. He even says... Unsolved Mysteries, 45 DVD set, the one you want. Now, now there's, there's a lot out there, but the this is the one you want. You want this one. And he's charging $225 for this set, or best offer. Wow, that sounds like a deal, Mike. How could anything be wrong with that? Because he's a fucking scumbag who's stealing from other people's websites and, uh, you know, private websites. And burning them onto discs and trying to charge you crazy prices for it. Mike, do you mean to tell me that there are websites where you can acquire ill-begotten segments of Unsolved Mysteries? You can then take said segments, burn them onto DVDs, and you can then sell them online to unknowing suckers to make a profit for yourself? Yes. Oh my god! (laughs) Oh, man, and this this perfect. this username, by the way, is Jackly Palau, and it's J A C L Y underscore P A L U. So if you want to, you know, flame him or block him or report him or something, because uh, I mean, you know, I get the whole supply and demand shit. Uh, he's got the supply, and there's people, and there's a demand out there, but it's just it's it's just wrong on so many levels because. You know, this bastard didn't do any of the work of getting these segments out there. He's just taking he's being an opportunist, you know. He's 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 Yeah. He's ripping these onto or he's burning them onto DVDs that he illegally downloaded and he's trying to make a profit off of somebody else's hard work of ripping the DVDs or or ripping the segments VHS. On, yeah, the VHS rips and putting them online for people to enjoy since John and Terry are such uh, old curmudgeons. Um, yeah, and they won't, you know, they 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 made big strides in releasing the originals on Amazon, and that satisfied my urge to seek out other means for a while. Well, I mean, I won't go any further into that slippery <laughs> slippery slope there, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that that's uh, that's really shitty of this guy, and it, and it says five available, so he's got five forty five DVD sets. I hope he doesn't sell a damn one of them. And he's stuck with all of those, uh, all, what is that, uh, 100, uh, 45, 45 DVD-Rs. Well, yeah. 225 DVDs yeah. total, I hope he gets uh-huh. stuck with. So, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah. So, um, I don't know what else to say. I think we well, I know, I know, covered everything. Well, uh, I know something else that can be said. And uh, before we go, I feel like you guys need to know a little bit about your fellow listeners because I, th- I think it's kind of a, a public service, you know, to just let you know who your neighbors are. So uh, this week I want to uh, shed a little spotlight on uh, Matt Frazier. Um, he actually used to be in a catatonic state. 
uh, and he was actually staying at this uh, hospital for people who were in catatonic states. Catatonic state basically means your your whole body you're paralyzed. You can't talk. You're you're what they known as is locked in. You're locked into your body. All you can really do is blink and breathe, and your heart goes, and all that's about it. And um, so he's at this hospital, and then this friendly uh, bearded doctor comes along who is this aspiring physician, and uh, he actually finds that um, if you take the medication that um, makes people... um, I forget. It was a certain kind of medication that, that makes people, I think, slow down or makes them calmer if you raise that dosage it actually has the opposite effect and it makes catatonic victims come out of their catatonic state and actually have a new life again and uh so that's what happened to matt he was given this medication and he came out of his catatonic state and he was able to like uh he he was able to go to a dance he met a, a lady but then he got too cocky with it though see that was the problem that was the sad part is is, is uh, the medication only worked for a limited time and it, and it became less and less effective and he started dropping things and he started losing the use of his legs and sadly before you knew it Matt was back in a catatonic state which he remains to this day so sorry about your luck Matt I have God no- that's depressing yeah the last person died the last person is eh, kind of dead. In a well, lot of ways. You know, I mean, you could say that he's dead. Other people would say kind of alive. I That's say, what I said. He's kind of dead and kind of you know, alive. Kind of dead, kind of alive. I mean, how, how he typed this story to me, I don't know. I mean, the powers of the mind are, are unreal, you know. But somehow he he uh, found out a way. So glad you're not dead, Matt, and you're, you're doing well. And I hope the best for you and... Uh, you know, I hope they set you in a good corner of the room that's got some interesting things to look at on the wall, and, uh, you know, I mean, girl, I wish the best to you, you know, that's all I really have to yeah, say. so do I. Now, uh, you know, did this happen? Maybe. It might not have happened. I think it maybe did, or maybe it didn't. I don't know. If you want a, a crazy story that's probably real... But it may not be. Uh, contributing, donating to a certain tier on our Patreon account is patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Uh, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. And we have a Facebook group that is even more interactive than the uh, Facebook fan page. And that's, again, you guessed it, uncovering unexplained mysteries. If you want to check out me and Mike on YouTube, uh, Mike's channel is youtube.com slash OCP communications. Uh, yeah, you know me. I'm down with OCP. Uh, he does movie reviews. He uh, he does a bunch of stuff on there, but he's mainly a movie guy. If you want to check me yeah, out. Yeah, I've been reviewing all of the mummy movies lately. Well, at least the Stephen Summers films of Brendan Fraser. And then I'm going to post a review, more like a rant. I'm and, just going to uh, say it right now, of e- the Tom Cruise film. What exactly did you rename the mummy? Oh, the Tom Cruise film? It's the cummy. <laughs> the cummy. <laughs> Oh, man, I have a really immature sense of humor. That's just just funny to me. Um, and you can uh, find my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. 
Um, I do so much different things on there. I just did a uh, behind the scenes thing on the making of my album, which is for sale. I'll put that link below if you want to check out my album. Um, and yeah, later on today or tomorrow, I'll be releasing uh, the little known history of Adam Sandler's comedy CDs that he put out in the 90s and early 2000s. So that's that'll be an interesting video that you're definitely going to want to check out. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm worn out uh, for some reason. I, I need to go get some fuel. I need some food. I think I'll order Panera. They deliver right to my house now. It's so fucking convenient. Um, but yeah, as for me and Micah, that is, that is this week's podcast, folks. Sorry it's out late. We had scheduling conflicts earlier in the week. And uh, yeah, I don't even think we have any outtakes. Holy crap. I think it was worth the wait, too. I really do. Anyway, thanks for listening, as always. And we will see you later. See ya. Toodaloo! What's up, guys? The new Dancing with Ghosts album that I have been working on is out now. You can buy it on iTunes or Bandcamp.com or anywhere else online where music is sold. Uh, If you go on Bandcamp, you can get a CD, a compact disc. Isn't that old school and retro of me? Remember those? Uh, Or you could just message me on Facebook and say, hey, I want a copy of your CD and I will mail it out to you. But uh, yeah, it's out now and it is it is finished and it's uh, some good stuff. So uh, if you want to go out and check that out, then uh, like I said, search iTunes anywhere else. uh, Music is sold online or go to Bandcamp.com and search Dancing with Ghosts. Thank you.